Well, peace be with you. Today is a final part, part three in our mini-series about spiritual gifts. A.W. Tozer, the theologian, says, These are not natural talents merely, but gifts imparted by the Holy Spirit to fit the believer for his place in the body of Christ. They are like pipes on a great organ, permitting the musician wide scope and range to produce music of the finest quality. We planned that. That was good. <laughs> Thank you, Nina. I love what Tozer says. And he talks about spiritual gifts. These are God-given abilities. And he, he uses this illustration like pipes on a great organ, right? And so the idea is that as the Holy Spirit lives within and works through his people, um, there's various things we do. But one of those things is we start to identify and exercise using our spiritual gifts, and when we start to identify and use them, it's like some of these pipes in our lives get unplugged and all of a sudden the spirit wind of God starts playing and working through us in a powerful way that it wasn't doing before. And so in this series, it's just short, it's three, uh, three messages on the topic. Um, we've, tra we've traveled a, uh, quite a long ways and so I want to give a bit of a quick recap uh, we kind of frame this in our life with Christ. And so here's a graphic that shows you some major things we need to keep in mind. So the salvation, right, which is being made right with God through Christ. But on the other side is sanctification. Now, that's a big word that simply means becoming holy or becoming more like Christ. And so our discussion about spiritual gifts, these God-given abilities, uh, fit within this category. We've talked about how every genuine Christian has at least one. We've talked about that insight from John Thompson that this is a heaven-guaranteed place of power in your life. We've talked about how all the gifts are important. We've talked about how the basis of the gifts is love, 1 Corinthians 13. Um, and I just want to acknowledge there's a lot we're not covering, right? Uh, this is a lot in a, in a couple of Sundays. This is the 10,000-foot view. It's okay. This isn't the end of a destination. It's the start of a journey. And so write your questions down. We continue to learn uh, together. Now, there have been some handouts uh, through this process. Uh, one of them looks like this. Uh, that was the listing of the spiritual gifts. More on the front desk if you missed it. Uh, the second handout from last week, we really got into how do I know what spiritual gifts I have? And we talked about six points of discernment. And so if you're able to get this, great. We ran out last week, which is also great because uh, it shows there's interest. But at the same time, you might want one. We've got more. They're out there on the welcome desk. If you're at home, uh, they're a, a downloadable PDF that has been made uh, available. So this week, here is our trajectory. We're going to look at Ephesians 4, verses 1 to 16. And then we're going to look at the power gifts. This is our third category of spiritual gifts, which are perhaps the most controversial, perhaps the most misunderstood. Uh, and then we are going to ask, where do we go from here? Okay, so if you've got your Bible, let's open it up to Ephesians 4. And if you don't have your Bible, the words will be on the screen. And so this is one of the places where some of the spiritual gifts are listed. So who wrote it? This is the Apostle Paul. And uh, this is the mid-first century. He wrote it either from Rome or Ephesus. It's hard to be sure. But he's writing to the Ephesians. And uh, Ephesus was a big city, uh, about 500,000 people. So in the ancient world, 
especially. That's, that's big. And these are most likely new converts. And so he's talking about spiritual maturity and growing in the faith, growing up in their faith. And so this section is about maturity and some other things. But he's writing from prison, by the way, and he continues to be an example of wisdom and perseverance regardless of his circumstances. Here's what he writes. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So think of those words. He's saying um, humility, gentleness, patience, love, unity, peace. So those are words not just for the Ephesians then, but for the global church uh, now. And then, starting at verse 4, he starts to talk about unity in the church, okay? And so listen for the word one. He's stressing unity and unity and unity. He uses the word in English, uh, in our English translations, seven times. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So what he's doing here is he's weaving together not only unity but individuality. There's unity or should be in the church. It's one God, it's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one spirit. Then he goes to talk about individuality. You have gifts given by the Holy Spirit to you, right? And this is what we've been talking about. So there's unity but individuality with the spiritual gifts that we might serve God. Verse 8, therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Excuse me, in saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Now that's probably the most puzzling part of uh, this, uh, this section of text, but really what's happening is this. He's alluding to Psalm 68, and he's basically saying, okay, Christ uh, uh, descended, you know, he came to earth, uh, lived amongst us, uh, the resurrection, resurrection happened, he's ascended to be at the right hand of our heavenly Father, right? So the one who is Lord of all, who is interceding at the Father's right hand, he's the one who has distributed gifts to his people. So they come to us from him, Okay. Verse 11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to, okay, so this is a partial list of gifts. So each week we've been going through some of these gift listings in the New Testament, and uh, this is one of them. Now here he's particularly focusing on some of the word, uh, the word or, or teaching related uh, gifts. But then he says in verse 12, to do what? To, this is key, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Now, this is very, very important to us. This isn't just about, okay, you may or may not have some of those gifts, and we are identifying what gifts we have. But the function of of the gifts, among other things, is to equip the saints, especially the teaching gifts, equipping the saints for the work of ministry. Now, what does it mean by saints? This isn't capital S saints, someone that the Roman Catholic Church has deemed to be in heaven and worthy of emulation. In the New Testament, when you come across the word saints, it literally means holy ones. This is God's people, and the NIV translation makes that clear. This is God's people. This is you to equip you for work of ministry. 
But even the work of ministry translation is a bit ambiguous because what does that mean? Is that an official church-sanctioned function? Uh, well, it includes that, but it's not limited to that. It's really works of service. So as we put our gifts and our lives of discipleship into work and practice, wherever it happens to be, here or in our homes or where you volunteer or school or workplaces or household, whatever it happens to be, you're being equipped for the work of service, for building up the body of Christ, which is a reference to the church, of course. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So the focus here is maturity. So manhood, but also men and women are obviously included in this. But what we need to see is that the maturity that he wants them to grow into is rallying around our knowledge of the Son of God, who is Jesus. So you, you can't really have spiritual maturity. You can't even have unity in the church if you're not clear about who Jesus is. The knowledge of the Son of God, maturity. Is it talk show Jesus? Is it 70s hippie Jesus? Is it... Um, you know, whatever social cause, Jesus, what is it, the political right, Jesus? No, no, no. It's the Jesus of the Gospels. That's who we're learning about. That, that is the real Jesus. And as we learn about him, we grow in maturity, and also that builds unity in the church. John Stott's a well-known theologian, and uh, he would travel around speaking in different parts of the world. Occasionally, he would be asked, because of his perspective, hey, how would you analyze the Christian landscape? And he would respond with three words, growth without depth. Growth without depth. This growth that comes and goes in various places, and hey, growth without depth is a problem because it lacks spiritual maturity. It lacks a unity in the knowledge of the Son of God. It lacks us identifying, using gifts, being the body of Christ under our one God and Father, right? Uh, so what we want is growth with depth. And this is what Paul is talking about here. Continuing verse 14, this continues his purpose statement, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. And so this is one of the famous verses from the book of Ephesians, speaking the truth in love. So maybe you've been planning a hard conversation with someone, you're like, oh, help me to speak the truth in love, right? This is where it comes from. And by the way, as we are to grow up into our head who is Christ, meaning as we are able to understand and learn more about him, not only what he says, but live out what he tells us uh, to live out, <clears throat> um, I'm grow it's going to be more natural and instinctual for me uh, to do what he wants, right? To be obedient to him. That's what growing up into the head is. Uh, but also speaking the truth in love. And that's a pattern for us because that's what Jesus did. He spoke the truth, but he didn't speak it from a place of malice or got you. He's speaking from a place of love, speaking the truth, truth in love. <clears throat> Continuing verse 16. From whom, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. 
And you'll notice that whenever Paul is talking about the spiritual gifts, whether it's here or 1 Corinthians 12 in week 1 or Romans 12 week 2, he always mentions love, which is the basis of the gifts. So uh, this is the word of the Lord. Okay, so having looked at that, um, uh, what we're going to do is we're going to look at uh, the spiritual gifts in the power category, Uh, but what we really want to carry out of uh, Ephesians 4 is this idea of spiritual maturity, oneness and unity in our proactive place in the body of Christ, okay? So having said that, we're going to look at our third and final category of spiritual gifts, and there's been a bunch of gifts that we've looked at. There's the love gifts, uh, the word gifts. Uh, Today, we're going to look at the power gifts. Uh, prophecy, speaking in tongues, interpretation of tongues, intercession, faith, discernment of spirits, words of wisdom and knowledge, healing and miracles. And let's just be honest, this is probably the most misunderstood category of spiritual gifts. Uh, This is uh, something which is maybe even the most controversial. And it's good to acknowledge that as we look at these, there are kind of been three major ways of approaching the power gifts. Um, And let me highlight one of them. Uh, The first group of people is called cessationists, and uh, here's where that comes from. It comes from the fact that some um, groups of Christians feel that some of the power gifts, speaking in tongues, prophecy, working of miracles and healing, really were confined to the first century into the period of the apostles, and they have ceased, hence cessationists, okay? Uh, A second group of people who have approached uh, these are Uh, continuationists. So as you could tell from the name, as it suggests, they feel that these spiritual gifts continue, okay? I myself would would put me in this category uh, simply because I don't see any evidence within Scripture that the gifts have ceased. Uh, Also, I've known some people with some of these gifts. Maybe you have as well. I think church history has borne witness to people with some of these gifts. Um, And so I would put myself in that category. And then the third category is awkwardly avoid the subjectists. (laughs) And I really think this is probably the majority of people. I grew up in this tradition. Maybe some of you did as well. And these people treat the spiritual gifts like, you know, strange Uncle Ned at the Christmas party. We know he's there, but we really don't want him to start talking. Um, It's like, uh, yeah, okay, hey, Uncle Ned. Got to keep him at a distance. And so that's kind of what we've done. Uh, These people are technically uh, continuationists on paper, but they're functional cessationists. But anyway... Regardless, it's not a matter for division in the church. Uh, It's not one of those critical central issues. It's just good to acknowledge that that many of us have come from different traditions that have different approach to some of these gifts. But my hope is that we prayerfully look at Scripture uh, and learn uh, together. So let's start uh, by looking at the power gifts, prophecy. And recall that all these demonstrate the power, presence, and reality of God. Prophecy, when someone, usually in a congregation or large gathering... Uh, delivers a a truth of a predictive nature or a situational word from God to exhort the community, edify or comfort believers or convince non-believers of God's truth. That's a definition from John Thompson. So maybe if you've ever been uh, feel uh, prompted to share in a group a special word of direction or which is situational, you you might have this gift. Uh, That said, when someone has this, it's important that they... Uh, consult with leadership, right? Because someone needs to be open to the fact that this needs to be tested. And so in 2 Thessalonians 5.20, we read that Scripture says that that we should not treat prophecy with contempt, but test it. And so if someone thinks, I might have this this gift of sharing a word uh, of encouragement or direction 
um, for a group of people in a setting, uh, if this person isn't willing to admit that sometimes they might be wrong, uh, I would seriously caution against that. There needs to be humility. There needs to be talking uh, with various people. And all these definitions, by the way, are on the handout from week one. Uh, next, and perhaps the most controversial or most misunderstood among other gifts, to spontaneously respond to a giving of an authoritative message in tongues by interpreting this word and clearly communicating the message given. So says J. Robert Clinton. I actually find that uh, definition a little bit confusing because he's actually bringing together uh, the tongues gift and the interpretation of tongues gift which follows. And so uh, a more clearer definition might be uh, Bruce Bugby who says, it's simply to speak, um, uh, worship, or pray uh, in a language unknown to the speaker. To speak, worship, or pray in a language unknown to the speaker. So this is an unlearned uh, language. So according to 1 Corinthians 14, the individual is actually speaking to God. They are, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 2, speaking mysteries by the Spirit. And so usually the context of speaking in tongues, usually and most often it's private. Someone is speaking and they're speaking to God and this is an act of, of worship, right? So that's fundamentally what, what this is primarily. Uh, there are cases, however, where it might be where a person is prompted to speak in a language that they themselves have not learned, but someone else actually knows it. It's another human language. So the place that we see that is in the day of Pentecost on Acts 2, where people are gathered in the, in the Holy Spirit and the, the, the tongues and everything, and they're actually speaking languages that are identifiable to people who have gathered in Jerusalem from other parts of the world. And so that happens in Acts 2, but I think more often than not today, it's, it's some sort of divine utterance uh, that is spoken uh, to uh, God. Um, now, interpretation is connected to it. When someone speaks in tongues and another person understands what is being said and can interpret for the audience. That's John Thompson's uh, definition. So <clears throat> the idea here is that usually if someone's using the gift of tongues and there's some sort of divine utterance, some mystery in the spirit, it's usually private if, in a situation, it happens in the context of a wider group of, of Christians or believers, there needs to be interpretation. And Paul goes into this in quite a amount of detail in 1 Corinthians uh, 14. So if it's done in public, there needs to be someone to interpret. So Paul goes to great measure to talk about how these things need to be useful. They need to build up the body of Christ. Things should be done decently in good order. And so if someone is not there to interpret this, then it shouldn't happen. The person should do it themselves, utter it to God. Uh, but we don't want to be doing things in a context of worship which is nonsensical and unhelpful. So there needs to be interpretation. So if you've ever been in a context where someone has been speaking in tongues and you don't know the language and you understand somehow what is being said, uh, you may have the gift of interpretation. Uh, God might have given that to you. Next, intercession. This is a gift of prayer. Uh, it's to regularly pray for extended periods and see frequent and specific answers to prayers more than what other Christians might observe. Okay? So this is a prayer gift, and as I've said before, all of us should be praying, right? We, we should be praying, and that's part of our spiritual disciplines, part of our life with God. But some people have this passion, this drive uh, to pray, and they can do so for extended periods of time. Not only that, but these people tend to be able to see specific responses to their prayers more frequently than other Christians uh, might. Now, we, we live in a world where actions speak louder than words, people say, right? So we've, we've devalued words and we put actions up here, and I get that. You want your words and your actions to match. You don't want to live in hypocrisy. But I think for people with this spiritual gift, 
uh, we are reminded especially that, that words are actions. That words are actions. That, that these people see God power. God delights to powerfully work through these people uh, in the answer to prayer. All right, next, faith. This is an exceptional confidence in God, his purposes, and his work. Now, again, we're all supposed to have faith. Like, we trust God. That we're believers. But this is an exceptional confidence in God. John Thompson says, these people have such faith, they walk into the room and start talking, and just, it, just, it breathes oxygen into the room. It is that exceptional confidence. And maybe when you're around these people, you're like, I feel as if my faith is strengthened simply because they have a strong faith. Right? 1994, a lot of hockey talk this morning. 1994, Mark Messier is captain of the New York Rangers. Uh, they're in the Eastern Conference final, and they're down 3-2 in the series. He speaks with the reporters that morning, and he says, we will win tonight. That's a pretty bold prediction to make. And of course, all the reporters jump on it. They print the story. Uh, that night, the game is going on. Third period, they're down 2-1. to one. Messier goes on the ice. He scores one goal, two goal, three goals. They win the game. They go on to win the series. They go on to win the cup. That is exceptional confidence. Someone with the gift, spiritual gift of faith, has that exceptional confidence in God, in, in what he has done, in what he is doing, and what he will do. Faith. Next, discernment of spirits. This is a God-given sensitivity to truth, error, or evil. That's Thompson's definition. So to tell when something is from God, humans, or Satan. And so this is when someone, God's given someone a gift to really have a heightened perception and to see into the spiritual realm to really understand what is, what is going on. They've got a heightened sensitivity, okay? So we need the reminder that Satan's real. Uh, uh, demons are real. Spiritual warfare is real. All of these things are real. And so someone with the discernment of spirits is able to really perceive, is this, is this, is this from God? Uh, are those motives pure? Or, or, or is something evil or sinister at work? And these people, by the way, can really be helpful in the church, um, for the historic uh, Christian church, uh, guarding against error, sometimes which seems well-meaning, but which is really uh, off, off the tracks. Next, words of wisdom or knowledge. Now, some people think this is two categories. Uh, it could be one. Uh, Thompson says, it's a knowledge about God or the Bible, but applied for living in a particular situation. Now, this is kind of like a teaching gift, but it's more one-on-one. -on -one. And so let's say uh, someone uh, speaks with others, and they have this amazing ability to just bring some sort of biblical scriptural truth to bear on their specific situation. They've got a trouble, a stress, a worry, a decision to make, and this person is able to connect with them and say, hey, maybe you should think about this Bible passage. What about, have you, you should talk to so-and-so. You should read that book. And they just zero in exactly on what that person needs. This is a God-given ability to share biblical wisdom. Next, healing. Now, healing and miracles um, are coming right at the end of the, of the power gifts. Healing is to be used by God to cure illness or give health in a way that can't be explained naturally. Now with this and miracles, we need to know that the person themselves is not doing the healing or performing a miracle. God is choosing to work through people in specific situations. So God's to give the glory, God is doing it. And I recognize that with something like this, especially maybe with some of the others, some people can be skeptical. Sometimes we're functional naturalists, right? Cause and effect. We, we live in this type of world. 
Um, I just want to say to the skeptics among us, it's interesting, a 2004 survey revealed that 55% of doctors have seen things that they would call miraculous. 55%. 75% of doctors surveyed say they were convinced miracles happen today. Now, the reason I say this is because I think it's good to think about that doctors who are in the healing business, in a sense, doctors also who happen to be generally more educated than the, than, than the general public are seeing things, they're close to things that simply cannot be explained any other uh, way. And so uh, I'm going to come back to a modern uh, miracle example shortly, but I'll leave that there and go to miracles. So miracles is, according to J.R. Clinton, the releasing of God's supernatural power so that the miraculous intervention of God is perceived and God receives recognition for the supernatural intervention. So this is closely related to the previous. Um, we might put exorcism in this category. Uh, and discernment of spirits is involved uh, leading up to an exorcism, which still happens, by the way. Uh, sometimes people come under serious uh, demonic influence. Uh, it's, it's a major therapeutic intervention, um, exorcisms, and, and yes, they occur. So this could be related to healing, but also think of someone maybe, and God works through them to change the course of nature somehow. Like th these, are, these are big picture things which give glory to God and just make people go, wow, and advance God's mission in the world. I do want to share a book recommendation uh, with you. And uh, I've really been interested in this topic, and many of you know Lee Strobel who wrote The Case for Christ, right? I'm sure many of you have read, read it. He also wrote The Case for Miracles, and so he takes this kind of skeptical worldview and applies it to uh, his, you know, these reports of miracles. And it's interesting because you may not realize this, but there, have been, uh, there has been a massive increase in documented miracles all over the planet starting in the mid-1980s. Why the mid-1980s? I do not know, uh, but it's really interesting. If you want to pick up that book and check more out, out about it, I encourage you uh, to do so. Okay, so that ends that. Let's go on to our last section as we bring this together and ask, where do we go from here? And I think Brian Stiller really helps us in the right direction. He says, God entrusts us with certain potential from which he expects a good return. We now have a responsibility to live out God's life in the world. So if you have the Holy Spirit living within you as a believer, and God has given you these gifts, they are to be used they are to be used in the world. Do you want to glorify God? Do you want a life of meaning and purpose and usefulness? Because I do. One of the ways we do that is to identify and live out our spiritual gifts. Now, there's an expression, uh, all hands on deck. And you wonder where some of these expressions come from. And this one is clearly from the world of, of ships. Uh, what does it mean? Okay, so there's a storm. Something is difficult. All hands on deck. So you can't have crewmates you know, at the end of the boat, gazing at the stars or someone under the deck, you know, sleeping in a hammock. You need all hands on deck for the storm, right? Well, did you know one of the metaphors for the, ship, for the church through history has been a ship? And guess what? There's a storm. There's a storm in the wider world. Ideological storms, storms of confusion, storm, there's, there's political storms going on. The church is under attack, the love and truth of Christ all the time. Like we talk about this. Not only that, but the church is internally dealing with many challenges locally and globally, right? There's, 
there's apathy or there's lukewarmness or there's waywardness in teaching sometimes or, or there's this plague of consumerism that has so affected the church in a negative way. And so we are in a time where all hands need to be on deck. And as you identify and use your spiritual gift, you are making a muscular and spirit-led contribution to your crew and captain who is Christ in the storm. Let me say that again. As you identify and use your spiritual gifts, you're making a muscular and spirit-led contribution to your crew and captain in the midst of a storm. All hands on deck, and we need all the spiritual gifts. And so do you want a church locally and globally that is healthy and that is robust and that is faithful? Because I do. We need to be identifying and using our spiritual gifts that God gave us to glorify him and build up the body of Christ to be the hands and feet of Jesus in the world. All hands on deck. You are the hands of Jesus to a world in a whirlwind. And let me just close with a few examples. Consider the person who meets with others, and, and others just seek this person out. They're going through a struggle. They have a decision to make. They're not quite sure. And whenever they talk to this person, this person just knows the right thing to say. It's faithful to what the Scriptures teach or they have a book recommendation to make, or they just have a word of encouragement at the right moment, the right wisdom for them. And when they leave that encounter, they always think, thank you, Lord, I was praying for direction, and you sent that person. Might that person have the gift of words of wisdom or knowledge? <laughs> All hands on deck. For yours are the hands of Jesus to a world in a whirlwind. We need all the gifts if we want the church local and global to be strong, healthy, and faithful. Or think of something we might think of more exceptional, but still yet given by God. Zeb Benjitsu is a pastor in Ethiopia. During one of his church's healing services, a boy came forward with no fingers. What do you pray for in a situation like that? Inner strength, peace, a pastor there, Pastor Mesfin, decided to boldly pray for healing. And as he did so, everyone who was gathered could hear five popping sounds. People exploded, started giving praise to God. Fingers appeared on the boy's hand. Now, I heard about that uh, several years ago, and I write about it, wrote about it in one of my devotionals. Apparently, uh, one of the pastors who was at that church somehow came across that devotional. He read it in Ethiopia, contacted me through my website, and said, Hey, I just want to let you know I was at that service. It was amazing. Might the person who led that service have the gift of healing? It's all hands on deck. Yours are the hands of Jesus to a world in a whirlwind. And we need all the gifts. If you want a church local and global, which is strong, healthy, and faithful. Last example. Or consider Joanne. So Joanne is uh, Anita Sigma's daughter. And uh, Joanne passed away uh, recently in December uh, last year. And uh, Anita and I talked about this last week, and she gave me permission to, to uh, discuss this with you. Joanne had Down syndrome and passed away when she was 60 years old. And uh, apparently the life expectancy for people uh, with Down, system, uh, Down syndrome is, is shorter than the general population. But... <clears throat> Anita discussed some things about uh, her daughter in a beautiful eulogy uh, that was delivered that was such a blessing to people. She described how Joanne was a gift. One time, Joanne went into McDonald's and saw someone from church and just went over unprompted and gave her a hug. 
And that was exactly what that person needed at that moment in time. Joanne had a certain joy that was with her whenever she walked around. She would write out Bible memory verses. One time, uh, Anita was having a prayer meeting at her house, and, and Joanne was there as well praying. And at the end, she kind of led the concluding prayer, and I believe you, Jesus. And it's like oxygen was breathed into the room. Joanne was and is a gift. Her faith was infectious. Her joy was infectious. Might she have had the spiritual gift of faith? That faith that builds others up and exceeding confidence in God, what, what he has done, what he is doing, what he will do, it breathes oxygen into the room and reminds you yet again that with him all things are possible. All hands on deck, for yours are the hands of Jesus to a world in a whirlwind. And so when you identify and start to live out your spiritual gifts, this is one of the ways that you make a muscular and spirit-led contribution to your crew and captain. Because guess what? There's a storm. So I encourage you to continue learning and to discern and use your spiritual gifts. Do you want to glorify God? Do you want to have a life of purpose? Do you want your local congregation to be healthy, faithful, strong? Do you want to be a blessing to the world? Me too. It's all hands on deck. To the glory of God. Amen.